0: Right, guys. Can you hear me? Yeah? All right. Good deal. Well, hey guys, it's good to see y'all. Everybody doing all right tonight? Yeah, everybody doing well? Good. Good to see you, Jack. Well, uh, guys, I got to be honest, man. This is a pretty good group of guys. When Ken uh, announced that we were going to be team teaching this thing, I thought uh, maybe half mass would be here this week, so I'm glad to see y'all. Uh, man, it's, it's nice seeing you from the front side. I'm, I'm used to seeing you from the back, and you guys are a lot prettier from the front than the back, so Anyway, man, it's good to good to be with you guys. Guys, just want to um, say thanks for for being here, uh, especially to the guys. That's the first time you've been here to Men's Ministry. Uh, man, the summer's a great time for you to kick around the tires and kind of get a flavor of how we do ministry. And so. Uh, for the guys that are here for the first time, thank y'all for being here, uh, man. We look forward to spending the uh, summer with you. And just so you know, if you missed last week or if you're new, we uh, over the summer, this next seven weeks, we are going to be doing. This is week two, but over the next seven weeks, we're going to be doing a uh, series in Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, what we're doing there, the goal with that is, is to ask the question, "What is faith?" Right? We're talking about talking through faith a little bit, we're going to be looking at some of the heroes of our faith, if you will. That that chapter is actually called the, we call it the uh, kind of the heroes of our faith, and so we're going to be looking at guys like Abraham, uh, Joseph, Moses, Noah. We're looking at Enoch tonight, and so that's kind of what we're going to be looking at over the summer. Um, so what I want to do for tonight is I am going to pray for us. We're going to open up in uh, the Word here. We're going to go to Hebrews 11, chapter 5 through 6 tonight. It's where we're going to spend our time. Um, And so we're going to, I'm going to give a little bit of an overview and a recap from last week. That way for some of the guys in the room that weren't here last week will know where we're headed, but also just for some of the guys that are like me and just can't remember what we talked about last week, you'll get a recap as well. And so, anyway, let me pray for us, and uh, then we will uh, hop into it. So, well, Father, we love you. We thank you for uh, your goodness and grace in our lives, Father. Thank you for um, just bringing these men here tonight. Lord, we... uh, We just acknowledge who you are in your presence, and we thank you, Father. And we just invite you here into this room, Lord, into um, an opportunity to study your word. Uh, Father, uh, I I know it's often it's easy for us to um, take advantage and to— uh, to not take the gravity of the opportunity that we have to study your word in, um, without fear of persecution or anything like that, and so thank you for that. God, I pray for the food. Thank you for all the guys who came early and set all this up. What a, serve, what, a uh, what a testimony those guys are, and so just thank you for them. Lord, thank you for this evening, and I pray that you'll just bless over uh, the word, Father, and as you speak to us, Lord, may we leave changed, um, uh, changed men, and so thank you for that. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. Well, all right, guys, so like I said, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 over the summer. And uh, for those of you who weren't here last week, We're working based on the premise that uh, we're, we're, we're working on the premise that the faith is a very nebulous word, right? We we use faith oth- we use faith often, and in Christian circles especially, it's a word that has kind of lost some gravity. Nobody really knows. We use it, but we don't really know what it means, you know. So you'll often hear people say um, things like, "Hey, well, if you just have enough faith, things are going to work out," right? You hear things like, "If you if you just have enough faith, you can move mountains." And maybe for some of the guys in the room who have family members or have been sick themselves, somebody has, has at some point said, well, if you just have enough faith, you'll be healed, right? But the question that I have for us tonight is, what is faith? What exactly is this thing that we call faith? And what is the object, the who or the what, that we are placing our faith in? And the reason why we're asking that question is simply because I'm under the conviction that who or what we place our faith in is actually the most important thing about us, right? And so this object, the who or the what that we're placing our faith in is really the most important thing about us. And the reason why that is true is because most often that who or that what that we're placing our faith in is what defines who we are. And so we get our identity as men, we find our value in the very thing that we put our faith and hope in in. And uh, a good illustration of that that I was thinking through this is professional athletes, right? And so most of you, I, not most, all of you are men in here, I hope, um, and so you're familiar with the National Football League, um, and if you're not, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. We're not going to, we won't call you out, but sorry. all right. Um, and as I was thinking through that, I was thinking about how when it comes to putting our faith in something and finding our identity in that, I'm, I found myself thinking about the National Football League and, and really professional sports in general. Oftentimes, these guys have a really hard time retiring, don't they? If you remember just uh, several years ago, Brett Favre, uh, one of my favorite players, he uh, really wrestled with this idea of retiring. You know, he reached the point where his body just couldn't take it anymore, but his heart was still there. You know, he was still that weekend warrior like many of us in the room, Uh, but the reality is, is his body had given up on him. Um, And the whole point that I'm, I'm trying to make there is that over time, all the time, the sacrifice, the money, all the stuff that he had poured into this life of being a professional athlete led him up to a point where he had to retire. There comes a day when we all have to retire, and the whole, the whole thing with, with Brett is, is that he really struggled with that. He was devastated to retire because essentially what he had done is he had placed all of his hope and all of his faith in his ability to provide and be a professional athlete. You know, I think we can also bring that a little closer to home in the sense of, of business and career, right? So uh, oftentimes we have, as men, we have this innate desire, this God-given desire that God has placed within us to be men who provide for our families, right? And so what we do is we go out and we get a job and that job soon turns to ambition and all of a sudden we find ourselves wanting to climb that ladder and do well and all of a sudden that innate desire that we once had, that we have, becomes something that controls us and becomes our identity and it becomes where we find our value. And so if that goes away, all of a sudden we become devastated. And the reason being for that, the reason why we become devastated is simply because our hope and our faith have been misplaced. Just to um, borrow a, uh, a, a sentence from a, a good pa- a, a pastor that I, I know, that I follow, you know, he says that these are all good things, career, professional sports, hobbies, these are all good things that is so easy for us to place our faith in. The problem is, is they just make terrible gods, right? They, they just make terrible gods, don't they? Because they always fail us. We, we always end up unfulfilled. We always end up wanting and seeking out more, and so... Anyway, so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about faith because we believe that it's one of the most important, if not the most important thing about us. And so what is faith? You know, We asked that question last week, what is faith? And we used Hebrews chapter 11, 1 to give us a description, not necessarily a definition, but a good description of what faith is. And so if you will, guys, flip over with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we're going to be in verses 5 through 6 tonight. Uh, But essentially what you find here is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, this is how we described faith. We said, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we can mention this idea of taking something that is not necessarily tangible. It's not something that you can feel. It's not something that you can see. It's not something that you can taste or smell. Rather, so it's intangible, and you're bringing it into reality and making it real. And so faith is really this idea of taking something that's intangible that we don't know, that we can't taste, we can't taste or touch, and bringing it into reality and making it true. And I think um, a guy. Uh, 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 named Richard Phillips makes a great statement on faith. He says this, he says, "...faith makes real to us things that are otherwise unreal to our experience." Faith is the confidence in those things that are not present to us but are promised by God. It's a confidence that translates into action. And so essentially he agrees with this that faith is the same idea of bringing this, this thing that we is intangible, that we can't feel, that we can't touch, that we can't see, and it's bringing it into reality so that it becomes real to you and to your life. And so again, faith is extremely important. and this, where I want to head tonight, kind of my main point, if you will, and really the one thing Thing that I want you guys to get, that if you leave here, literally if you leave here, this is what I want you to get, and that is, guys, that faith is the key that unlocks the door to God's pleasure over your life. Okay, so faith is the key that unlocks the door to God's pleasure over your life. And what we're going to see all through Enoch's life—we're studying Enoch tonight—what we're going to see through all through Enoch's life is this playing out. And what we're also gonna see is that this faith is gonna be flushed out. It's gonna be flushed out in our belief in the existence of God in the, the reality that he rewards those who seek him in the everyday stuff of life. And so that's kind of where we're going to be headed tonight. Uh, before we unpack that, I really want to uh, kind of lay some groundwork here and talk about a little bit about who is Enoch. So we're going to ask the question, who in the world is this guy? Other than the fact that he's an Old Testament character, uh, he's got a pretty odd name, like most every Old Testament character does. Um, but yeah, so who is Enoch? Well, it's You you know, Enoch is really kind of an odd duck, and the reason why I say that is because there's really only about three verses in the entire Bible that are specifically addressed to him. And so you've got Genesis chapter 5, where we're going to spend some time, so you're you're going to want to put your finger in Genesis chapter 5, 21 through 24. Uh, which is going to describe his life, okay? Then you've got Hebrews chapter 11, which then explains what we don't really understand about about Genesis 5. And so those two are kind of playing off of each other. And then the other verse that we're going to get to here in a little bit tonight is going to be in the book of Jude, the great book of Jude. And so, and we're going to learn a little bit there, but we'll talk about that here in a minute. But... As you open up the Bible and if you search for Enoch, what you're going to find is in First Chronicles chapter 1, you're going to find a genealogical record. Now before you um, have a cow with the fact that I just said geneal- genealogical record, I know for a fact that if you've read 1 Chronicles 1, this is the part that you've skipped, and so I'm giving you new information. If, if I know I'm giving you any, any new information tonight, it's going to be this, because I know that everybody skips over all the names. but. Um, What we find there, guys, is that Enoch is actually seven generations removed from Adam. And so where we find ourselves in the story of of man is that we are seven generations removed from Adam, which roughly places us around 600 or so um, years outside of the garden, just past the fall. Which also would place us about roughly around 1400 B.C. Now, uh, those dates aren't terribly accurate just because we just don't know prior to the flood. Um, but that's what scholars have, have come up with, and that's of course based on a young Earth view, uh, a seven-day literal framework view, if you will, which is what our church stands for. But the point there is, is that we find ourselves in a place where we're seven generations removed from Adam. And then the second thing, guys, that, that you're going to find as we open up Enoch's, uh, Enoch's life is the fact that he's just a normal guy. You know, I think we have this temptation, um, especially as men in the 21st century, to look at Hebrews chapter 11, and man, we can read through these guys and think, man, these guys are just so far above us. You know, these guys are uh, just darn near perfect, right? If God wrote about their faith, then they must have been doing something right. And and while that is true, absolutely true, guys, I really want to blow up the idea that these guys were perfect. Okay, these guys did nothing out of the ordinary that God didn't do through them. Okay, and so the idea that we can't do, not necessarily do the same things that they did, but we are still called to the very same things that we're going to study about in the lives of each of these men. And so Enoch is just a normal guy. He was more than likely a shepherd because that's pretty much all you did in the near, near East, Near Ancient East. So he's a shepherd. He's a family man. Um, Enoch is the son of Jared. Uh, we know that from the Genesis uh, chapter 1 or Genesis chapter 5 account. If you would, uh, let's go ahead and look at that. Um, It says in Genesis chapter 5 here, let me get over there, it says in Genesis chapter 5, it says in verse 21, it says, when Enoch lived to be 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And so we know just prior to that that Jared is his father. We also know that Enoch has a son named Methuselah, uh, and good grief, he uh, had Methuselah at the ripe age of 65 which I think if I calculate here in the room, that's, that's a good 40% of you. Would, that would be kind of like you finding out that you're going to be a daddy for the first time at the age of 65. And I mean, that's a death sentence, right? I mean, good, good, that'd be like Ken finding out that he's going to be a daddy for the first time. I mean, so you can imagine that, but that's that's really commonplace for this day and time. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the the longevity longevity of life was a lot longer, too. I mean, you look at Enoch's father, Jared, he lived to be 962 years. You look at Enoch's life, he lived to be 356 years, I think it is. Um, His son, Methuselah, I think even lives to be somewhere in 900. And so this is commonplace prior to the flood. And so, all that to say is that, man, these are normal men. They're normal guys, just like you and I. Now, it's different in the sense that they don't go and get, they don't wake up, take a shower, and go to an office place. They they don't shower, which is kind of gross. Which I hope most of you guys shower. Uh, But it is. It's the it's the same stuff. They struggle with the same things that you and I do. And then the third thing, guys, that we learn about Enoch is we find that in the book, in the great big book of Jude. And so you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. Uh, You can if you'd like to, but you don't have to. Uh, But what we learn is that Enoch was actually a prophet. Now, we don't learn that in the account in Genesis, which is, I find to be pretty odd that uh, Moses didn't record that. But what we do find is in Jude, we find that Enoch is a prophet. And so I'm going to, let me just read this to you. It starts in verse 14. It says, It was also about these that Enoch they're loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. And so, man, what we learn there, or actually, um, if you're any, if you're familiar at all with any sort of biblical in- interpretation, one thing that they teach you is that in any time you are opening up a passage, and there's repetition, right? So there's a word that's being used, there's a theme that's an ongoing theme. The author is probably trying to make a point there, right? Like there's a good purpose for the reason why he's making that point. And in this case, in verse 15, what we see in in verse verse 15, I'm going to read it again. It says, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way And of all the harsh things that are ungodly sinners have spoken against them. And so what you see there is that Jude is using ungodly four times. And so immediately we can tell that that's a pretty big thing, right? That's an important thing to glean on that passage. But I think what we can infer here is that Enoch is prophesying in his day, but also in future days, of the ungodliness of man, right? He's prophesying against or prophesying to the ungodliness of the world. And so immediately what we find from the life of Enoch is that he, had, he understands a grave difference between what is ungodly and what is godly, right? Would you guys agree with me there? He understands that there's a difference between what is godly and what is ungodly. But here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. He has absolutely nothing to tell him what is godly and what is ungodly. You know, if, you're, if you uh, remember from just a, just a minute ago, just from the genealogical record, we're 600 years outside of the garden. We're several hundred years before Moses is even a thought, and Moses is the one who writes the book of the law and the Ten Commandments, right? And so in Enoch's world, he's got absolutely nothing to base any of this idea of godliness and ungodliness off of. And so I think what we can infer there too is that Enoch spent his life in complete dependence and submission to hearing from God, right? So God had to specifically reach into Enoch and give him this idea of ungodliness versus godliness, or else how would he know? Right, He wouldn't. He wouldn't know. And this this idea of godliness and ungodliness has always been something that really has uh, been super interesting to me, primarily because of my own ignorance with it, right? Um, But there's a guy, uh, I read a book, several—oh gosh, this was probably about a year ago—that really frames up this idea well, and uh, he defines ungodliness. He, let me just kind of summarize this for you. He says, ungodliness is a lack of thought about God in your everyday ordinary life, right? And so ungodliness is this idea of it's a lack of thought about God in your everyday life. You know, and I think kind of what we can infer there, too, is that uh, then, then the very definition for godliness then, on the opposite side, would be that it's, it's a literal thinking and enjoying God's presence in the everyday stuff of life. And uh, kind of some just practical examples, That's, that was a quote from a guy named Jerry Bridges, um, but he brings this idea of what we would call a practical atheist. It's, it's as if you are going about your life living as if God doesn't exist. Right, and so this idea of a practical atheist is a guy who, or a person who would, uh, would, would say that, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but yet they're living their life as though God doesn't exist. And, um, you know, I was thinking about this in my own life, because, man, this really, really hit me hard. And uh, oftentimes I kind of pride myself on the fact that I can be pretty disciplined, and I enjoy getting up early in the morning. I enjoy going for a, to, to, to work out, and then I also enjoy going and spending some time with the Lord every morning. And so, more often than not, I get the opportunity to sit down and spend 30 to 45 minutes in the Word. And as much as I want to pride myself on that, here's the problem with that. The problem is, is by about 8:30 in the morning, you know, I'm, I'm rushing out the door. I've showered, I've eaten breakfast. I'm heading off to work, hustling through my day, cussing at the first person who uh, cuts me off in traffic, right? And I think if If we're being honest here, I think that's pretty much the definition of ungodliness, right? It's a lack of thought about God going through my everyday life. It's this idea that I can be with God in the morning, and then as soon as I cut that off, I go throughout my day as if God doesn't exist. And by the time I lay my head down at night, I can close my eyes and I I sit there and think, wow, I, I gave God very little time of day. Um, And I think that's the very definition of ungodliness. But what we see early on in the life of Enoch is that, man, he understands what godliness is, right? He understands the difference between ungodliness and godliness. And just to repeat myself, it says, uh, I think what we can find here is that godliness really is, guys, it's spending your entire day thinking about and enjoying God's presence in the ordinary stuff of life. To be godly is simply to walk with God in the everyday stuff of life, and guys, that's exactly what we see that is characterized all the way through Enoch's life, and we're going to see that if you go back with me here in uh, Genesis chapter 5. We're going to spend our time there for a little bit here. What we're going to find here is that... um, Picking up back in in verse 22, it says, And Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And so uh, immediately what we see there is Enoch had walked with God for 300 years. He had spent his life in complete dependence and reliance upon God to reveal to him what is ungodly and what is godly, and he walked with God for 300 years. this is kind of just an interesting thing and I just found it to be really interesting is that the only two men in the entire Bible that are ever mentioned to to have walked with God are Enoch and Noah. And I find that to be really interesting because they both find themselves in the same point of time where they have no Bible, they don't have any sort of Christian community, they don't have a men's ministry where they can come and enjoy red meat and hang out with men and chat it up and encourage one another, they don't have any of that. Uh, They have to solely rely on God. And so I found that to be quite interesting, right? Um, But anyway, yeah, let's go back to see. So yes, yeah, so the majority of Enoch's life, he's described as having walked with God. And again, Enoch and Noah are the only two men in the Bible who have, who have been noticed to walk with God. And so what they did is what they found themselves doing is that they stood in the gap between what was godly and what was ungodly in the world. When everything around them, their circumstances, all said something opposite, they stood in the gap and said that they chose God over the fleeting pleasures of sin. And so I think, you know, something that's important for us to wrestle with tonight is, you know, what in the world does it mean to walk with God? You know, I've, I've said that often. I've heard it often in Christian circles. We talk about it a lot. But good grief, what in the world does it really mean to walk with God? And uh, the Hebrew word there for, halak, for, for uh, walk is actually halak. And it brings about two separate ideas, but I think with a marriage between the two, we can gather a pretty good idea of what it means to walk with God. The the first meaning of it is a literal walking, as if I'm walking to the river, right, or I'm walking to the field. The, The other aspect of it is more of a posture or a manner of life that one chooses to live, so it's more of a lifestyle choice. And I think with both being—with a marriage between the both of them, we, got, we get a pretty good idea of what it means to walk with God. And what we learn is that Enoch lived his entire life as though God encompassed every bit of it. He lived his life with God and that he believed that he was with him in the every detail of life. And so Enoch lived his life in such a way that God was a part of every bit of it. I mean, he was a part of every detail, walking with him, fighting with his battles with him. He was always with him. God's presence was always with him. And, uh, you know, walking with God brings about a very similar idea um, in Genesis 17 when God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. And it kind of brings on this idea of, man, that God, that there is absolutely uh, complete awareness of God's presence in your life. He's, he's saying, Abraham, I want you to walk in such a way that you're walking in complete awareness of my presence and who I am, right? And uh, I think you know, ironically, this really kind of blows up our, our desire as men to want to compartmentalize our life, right? It really does. It blows up this idea that we so dearly and want to hold on to and compartment our lives, because we as men in the 21st century, we so want to live in these little sections of our lives, don't we? I mean, even like as you come here, it's, it's hard to open up with other men, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a hard thing for us to do. So we want to compartmentalize our lives, but this idea of inviting God into our life and into all the nooks and crannies of our life is pretty difficult for us as men. But just to humor me here, what I want you to do is I just, I want you to picture, this is my illustration, the way I think about what it means to walk with God. So just picture this with me. I want you to take a, uh, take four glasses, just four clear glasses in your mind, and I want you to pretend like you're putting them out on a table, so you've got a glass here, you've got glass here, glass here, and a glass here. So you've got four glasses, and in each of these glasses, I want you to picture that there's half a full of of water, And the first glass, I want you to picture that that's your family. So anything and everything that you do as a family man, so the sacrifice that you make for your kiddos, um, you know, family outings, vacations, uh, just the ordinary details of your life, picking kids up here, taking kids activities, all that stuff, that all fits into that one uh, one glass there. And then the next one is is your career. So it's your job, it's your occupation, right? And so everything from, you know, you getting up, getting dressed, heading to work, all the things that you do that are related to your occupation, Occupation and your job will fit in that, that second glass right there. And then in the third glass is gonna be your hobbies, right? We all love our hobbies, whether it's golf, football, um, you know, reading, whatever it is, woodworking, whatever it is that your hobbies are, that's going to be the third glass. And then in the fourth glass is going to be your church activities. Now that is the one that gets a little tricky, um, because that's going be, to re- represent all your church activities. So whether you come to a men's ministry, uh, whether you come and serve at the men's ministry, you greet on Sunday mornings, your Sunday attendance, small group, all that stuff, I want you to fit in that glass. And so you're picturing that with me. And then at the end of that, you're picturing a, a, a big glass pitcher. Okay, and in that big black big glass pitcher, I want you to picture it full with Gator with a uh, with Kool-Aid, right? Bright red Kool-Aid. And in that that bright red Kool-Aid, what I want you to picture there is that that is God's presence. That is God in his presence. And I want you to pick that up in your mind, and I want you to begin to pour that into your life. And as you pour that into your life, I want you to think through all the ways in God's character and how He has shown His love to you, and let that, let His presence, let all the joy that you've received from the Lord, His blessings, the way that He has been faithful to you, all that flow into your family. And so now you're taking God's presence, and you're taking what you've received from God, and you're flowing that into your presence. And so no longer are you begrudgingly submitting to all the activities and all the things that you have to do as a dad, but rather you're joyfully and eagerly showing up and wanting to serve your wife and serve your kids. You guys tracking with me there? And then so you've got your workplace, right? And so you pour God's presence into your workplace. And as you're pouring God's presence into your workplace, suddenly you realize that, man, you're no longer just working for the man. Rather, you're working for the Lord, and you're working to glorify Him in all that you do. And so instead of just working for the man and showing up to make a buck and to provide for your family, Rather, you're showing up to bring glory and honor to Him, and whether that means being in you know, high integrity, whatever that means for you, that's pouring God's presence into your workplace and being a light in a dark wor- world there. And then as you pour God's presence into the hobbies, I want you to think through that. as uh, So it's, it's no longer, you're not just going and hanging out and watching a football game, or you're not just going to a TCU or a Baylor game, or you're not just going to play golf, rather, but you go to play golf to enjoy God's good creation in His good gifts towards you and for you, right? And so instead of it just being about going and hanging out with the buds, rather it's going to enjoy God and what He has done for you. And so you're bringing along God's presence with your life. And then again, this is the one that gets tricky, right? So you're, t- you're saying as we get to the church life thing, it's like, well, of course I, I take God's presence to church, but the reality is, is we really don't though, do we? We don't really take God's presence to the church, because if if we did take God's presence to the church, we really wouldn't care what color the carpet was. We certainly wouldn't care who's preaching. We wouldn't care what the music's like. We wouldn't care about all these petty things, but rather we would come to just glorify God and worship Him, wouldn't we? Yeah, absolutely. Our our whole goal there would be that we would show up to just worship the Lord, and so you're pouring God's presence into every aspect of your life, and by that you're getting this idea that walking with God is simply opening up your life and pouring God's presence into every aspect of your life, so that you can think on Him and that you can enjoy His presence in the everyday stuff of life. And guess this is what we see. This is what it means to walk with God. This is what it means to be godly. And so again, it's walking with God means that you voluntarily open up your life and allow God to be a part of everyday stuff of life. Man, even the monotonous details, they don't go unnoticed, right? So even when you're picking up your kids, even when you're making the toast in the mornings, everything that you do as a father does not go unnoticed. Rather, when you're opening up your life to God's presence, everything and everything, even the monotonous details that you do, has great purpose because you're not serving anyone else other than the Lord. Right? And that's what we see in Enoch's life. And so what we find out from Enoch is that soon God is going to reward him for his faithfulness. He's going to reward him for the life that he lived. And we see that here in Genesis uh, 5, verse 24. It says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now what in the world does that mean? That Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Because essentially what that means is, is exactly what it says. Is it, Enoch just took, or God just took him. God literally transferred him from life on this earth to life in eternity. He literally just took him. He rewarded him by taking him off this wicked, awful earth and bringing him into eternity to enjoy eternity with him. But the thing that we need to ask ourselves is, why in the world would God have done that? right? Why in the world would God have done that? And what we're going to find, if you flip back over to uh, the... Uh, Hebrews passage, Hebrews 11, 5, and 6, we're going to find that answer. We're going to find the answer in verse 5 specifically. It says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Literally, God had rewarded him by the fact that he reached down, he was pleased with his life, and he took him. It goes on and says, Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And so what we learn is the reason why God had taken Enoch off this earth is simply because he pleased God. God. He lived a life that was pleasing to God. He lived a life that was um, pleasing to God. Uh, But I think too is, well, how in the world did he do that? You know, how in the world did did Enoch live a life that was pleasing to God in the day and time that he lived? And verse 6 does a great job explaining that. And In verse 6 it says, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the answer there is by faith. Enoch lived a life that was pleasing to God by faith think about it this way. Just remember the definition that we use, that faith is, a, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. He took what he knew to be intangible, and he brought it into his life, and he took God at his word. And so he lived a life that was pleasing to God. And um, I think what is really important here that we need to know to is, is in verse 6 it says, and without faith it is impossible to please him. It is impossible to please him. Guys, I think it's easy for us as men to think that somehow, by some means, that our manner of life is somehow going to help us be—stand right with God, doesn't it? As men, we desire that. We want that. But that word there, impossible, in the Greek, it actually means impossible, meaning you can't do it. There is absolutely nothing on this earth. There's no amount of good deeds. There's nothing that you can do on this earth that your life would ever please God. All of your good deeds are simply filthy rags before a holy God, and this is a good thing. This is a good thing. All of our deeds, no matter, How many mission trips you go on, no matter how many times you uh, read your Bible a day, no matter how many times you pray, no matter how many times you come to a men's Bible study, no matter how much success you receive at work, no matter how much money you make, there's absolutely nothing that you can do to find yourself pleased by God. Your life can physically not please God apart from faith, apart from believing in the existence of God and the fact that He rewards those who seek Him in the everyday stuff of life. And what we find is that is so true in the cross isn't it? It's this reality that God gave up everything in order that we may have life, that we may live a life that's pleasing to God. And so for those of us in Christ, we stand right before God. We do walk in a way of pleasing God, and we do this by faith. Again, everything comes back to faith, and that's why it's so important, because again, it really does come down to who we are as people. By faith, we are children of God. Why? Because God told us that we are. If God didn't tell us that we are, then we wouldn't be children of God, would we? No, by faith we take what is intangible and we bring it into real life and we make it reality. And so God rewards Enoch for his faithfulness, and so I think this brings us back to really kind of that main idea that I really wanted to get at tonight, and that is that faith is the key that unlocks the door of God's pleasure on your life. And the fact that God, God rewards those who seek Him in the everyday stuff of life, And so immediately we see what it means to walk with God and what it means to be godly men. And that's what we see all throughout Enoch's life. And what we're going to see all the way through this entire series is that these men have these different characteristics. But at the end of the day, what it always comes back to is that they just took God at his word. They simply just took God at his word. They took him for what he said to be true. They took what was intangible and they brought it into reality and they made it concrete in their lives. And so the way that I, uh, I want to kind of wrap this up and just land the plane here is just to ask you guys, man, what in the world, what are, you, what are you putting your faith and hope in? What is the object of your faith? And now let me ask you a question. How's that working for you? Is it working all right? Is it, is it working well for you? You know, I know for my life, it's not. Oftentimes, it doesn't work well for me at all. Because the reason why is because there's a hole in my heart that only God can fulfill. And so we find ourselves in this area. We find ourselves in a place where we're constantly trying to fill that hole. But the reality is, is guys, the only thing that can fill that hole is by faith in God, by bringing what we know to be true and bringing it into real life. And just to leave you with this great quote by a guy. He's an old theologian, and he's been dead for a long time. But, man, this is a great quote. Um, He says this, this is J.C. Ryle, he says, In walking with God, a man will go just as far as he believes and absolutely no further. His life will always be proportional to his faith. His peace, his courage, his zeal, his works will all be according to his faith. God, faith is drastically important. That's why we're spending seven weeks in this series. And so I'm going to leave you guys with that. Let me pray for you, and then you guys can go to discussion um, and have some fun with that. So let me pray. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are. God, thank you for your grace in our lives. And, Lord, the fact that um, you cause us to be born again to a new hope and a new life, that we can put faith in you, and that although we can't see you and we can't touch you, Father, we know you are true. And we know, what you're, we know that your word is true. And so as we bring you into real life, Lord, and we, as we learn to walk with you and we understand what godliness is and what godliness is not, Lord, I just pray that you'll fuel our hearts and our passions for you. Uh, Father, be with these men as they uh, discuss tonight. I, pr- I pray, Father, that you would just, um, yeah, stir their hearts for you. Uh, show them how big and how great you are, Father. Thank you for that. Uh, Lord, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.